Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, we are here at CES, and I have the pleasure of being seated with Andy Keller, who is a deep learning data scientist at Intel, and Emil Chindiki, who is a senior manager of marketing partnerships at Intel. And we've got an opportunity to chat about one of the cool announcements that was made. Uh, was it yesterday or today? It was kind of announced yesterday and then kind of more That's fully right. announced today. I'm going to keep you in suspense for just a little bit longer. Uh, and actually ask these guys to introduce themselves, and then we'll get into what that announcement was. Uh, so why don't we start with you, Andy? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a deep learning data scientist at Intel. Uh, I started at Nirvana before the acquisition, okay. um, working as an intern, doing some of the same kind of object localization stuff that um, we're using for this soon-to-be-announced project. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, specifically, I was implementing um, some other models like faster RCNN. Um, like what? Faster RCNN. Okay. Um, more recently, I've moved to kind of more similar work that I did for my master's at UCSD, um, which is natural language processing and dialogue systems and question answer systems. Okay. And so now I'm started full time after finishing my degree and nice love being here awesome awesome emil my name is emil tanicki um i uh joined last year uh the uh artificial intelligence products group at intel and uh, i'm responsible for marketing partnerships so what that means is that i work with our uh partner companies to showcase both uh, partner technologies as well as Intel technologies, showcasing the uh, our efforts on in artificial intelligence. And in fact, in fact, it was one of these partnerships that uh, Intel CEO Brian Krasanich announced at uh, his CES keynote last night, uh, and it's a partnership with uh, Ferrari Racing. And you know, I think for me, thinking back to that, uh, to to Brian's keynote. You know, it's a little surprising for me. I, I, I guess, you know, I'm, you know, I kind of exist in this AI bubble and I expected it to be like just pure AI consumer devices stuff. But Intel as a company is like way more all in into this virtual reality and immersive experience that, uh, than I, I knew. I didn't know anything about Intel's efforts around true VR and, and the other virtual, uh, reality plays in the immersive, um, experience that uh that he talked about i mean and it's everything from outfitting the olympics uh that are coming up um you guys built a studio like a uh what a volumetric studio and there was a partnership with uh paramount theaters announced there was a ton of discussion around like how you would use this stuff in sports uh, and then one of the the partnerships that was announced in that context was this partnership with Ferrari. Uh, so, you know, tell us a little bit about that partnership and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Yeah. So what was announced was a, a three-year partnership with uh, Ferrari Challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. Ferrari Challenge is a race series put on by uh, Ferrari. 
uh, and it takes place in different regions. Um, we're specifically partnering with the, the North America team. So one of the areas that we're applying artificial intelligence is to the race stream. Um, so that's basically applying uh, uh, AI techniques around uh, single sh shot detection and uh, fine grain classification uh, to recognize the cars that are uh, being captured in each of the camera feeds. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the intent is to use that as metadata to curate uh, camera feeds for viewers that are specific to each uh, car or driver. So uh, in basically a fan could pick their favorite driver and we could deliver a uh, curated feed specific to that driver as they make their way around the entire track. Hmm. As I understand it, it's, uh, you know, not just fans, but today, like the, you know, is every, all of the, the folks that are broadcasting a, a race like the Ferrari Challenge, they're all operating off of the same feed, like everybody gets the same feed. Is that how it's working today? Yeah. So if you think of a traditional race broadcast um, or more typical race broadcast, uh, you have kind of a director's cut of the action. Mm -hmm. And normally um, the, the feed is focused on the first three or four cars in the, in the race. So uh, if your favorite driver is not among those uh, couple cars, then uh, you may not actually see too much of them during a broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we notice that um, people's consumption of media is uh, changing, uh, and we expect that there's no reason why that shouldn't change um, for, you know, motorsports broadcasts as well. Um, this basically puts more choice in the hands of the fan. Um, to kind of get a more tailored, ta uh, customized uh, viewing experience. Mm -hmm. How would I configure my feed? Is this something that, um, is this being delivered for me like via a, a live stream and I'm choosing a car or something like that? Or what's the, the yeah. kind of experience of tailoring the feed? Yeah, so the intention is that this would be a stream uh, that would be broadcast live, you know, over an app or uh, a website. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, exactly what you said, you know, you could pick your favorite driver and kind of get that tailored, uh, that tailored stream according to that driver. And this isn't being done by just putting traditional cameras around the track. Well, um, yeah, so there's two components. Um, there's, uh, we're, we're using drones to capture the uh, race footage. Um, so that actually adds a rather dramatic element to the uh, race um, experience, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so these are not fixed point cameras. Um, and then uh, the notion is that you can um, apply these uh, recognition techniques to each of those camera feeds so that at any given point in time, you know exactly which cars are showing up in which camera feeds. And okay. so with that information, you can kind of tailor that uh, stream to a uh, end user and viewer. Interesting. And how many how many drones are going to be flying around the Ferrari uh, challenge when this thing is running? Yeah, so it's a, somewhat a function of the track configuration and okay. length. But um, uh, for starters, we're looking at uh, between five and six drones. Okay. Um, and we'll kind of go from there. And are the drones mostly kind of fixed in each one? covers a, an area of the track or are they like following the cars or something? Um, yeah, so there's, um, they're not fixed in one 
location, uh, they have kind of more of like a territory, if you will, that okay. they'll cover. So they may you may see them like zipping around. Yeah, the they'll be moving around territory. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I was talking to someone on your team yesterday about this uh, at the like at the keynote, right before the keynote, and uh, you know we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, kind of the AI elements and challenges associated with this, but you know just thinking about even like the you know you've, at this day and age you've got to be capturing like 4K, 8K streams like off of a drone and like getting those down to you know, someplace where you're going to process. I mean, it's not, there's a ton of stuff that, you know, keeping the drones in the air is a challenge, mm -hmm. um, but a ton of technical challenges here. Really, really interesting. So may maybe this is a good segue to actually talk about some of the AI stuff. And Andy, this is where uh, some of your work has come in. Yeah. yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about kind of the underlying uh, AI technologies and what the, the primary goals are for the project that you worked on. Yeah, so um, we thought a good place to start. Um, we needed a foundation on which to kind of build other analytics about all of the drivers and the racing that was going on. So mm -hmm. we, we realized we needed something else to build some sort of analytics platform on. Mm -hmm. um, and to start that, we really needed to be able to know, okay, we're going to be using the video footage. We need to know which drivers we're looking at in any given feed, and we need mm -hmm. to know where they are. We need to actually be able to localize them. Right. Um, so obviously the first thing that makes sense is some sort of object detection or object localization model, um, which can draw boxes around all of the cars on the track and then mm -hmm. uh, potentially classify them uniquely as who's in what car. Um, so kind of as a starting point for that, um, we had tested out using models that were pre-trained on some other data sets and okay. realized that pretty quickly realized we were going to need to gather a domain specific data set just because um, like Emil mentioned, the drone footage is dramatic in some sense. And uh, you don't find a lot of that out on uh, YouTube. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what did you start with? Um, what data sets did you try to um, train on initially? Yeah, we were using um, the Kitty data set, which is kind of one of the self-driving, early self-driving data sets. Okay. Um, but so it has bounding boxes around all of the cars and it, you can build a basic car detector off of that, mm -hmm. but it's all from the viewpoint of kind of the dashboard of a car. Yeah. Um, so... Some of those viewpoints apply from a drone, but a lot of our shots are really long distance and kind of uh, unique angles that we'd never seen before in that data set. Right. So right. That, that was kind of our main driving factor in generating this new data set, which was uh, a lot of the portion of uh, the beginning of this project. So in the typical... Um, the typical race, you'll have these five or six drones uh, kind of zipping around their territories, capturing data of the the field is, is a dozen or two dozen cars typically? Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, and for each of these, each of these drones uh, is instru instrumented with a camera and you're pulling down a feed and you're doing you know, what otherwise might seem like a typical autonomous driving task, like putting bounding boxes around the cars that are in the, uh, on the track. So the first step is is building a model based on this Kitty data set, um, and then that wasn't giving you the 
the accuracy that you're looking for. So you started building your own data set. And was this like by, you know, running drones on top of racetracks or? Yeah, basically. So we had uh, a substantial amount of footage from across the entire 2017 season of recording from a bunch of drones at every single race. Okay. Um, and this was in 4K. Um, and so we knew that a lot of this footage uh, maybe wasn't as useful. So we needed to kind of sort through that as a first step to generating a training set. Mm. Um, so we had uh, probably hundreds of hours of 4K footage and it was some of the data scientists job to actually look through and find kind of really high variance shots, shots with differences in lighting, um, differences in size of the cars, since these drones will move anywhere from 10 feet off the ground to 100 feet off the ground. Um, that really changes the appearance of the car and what the model is going to be able to learn. Mm -hmm. um, so we really tried to get as much variance as possible. Um, and what was the approach to doing that? Was this something that, um, you know, that war was kind of manually coming through footage and hand annotating or did you, um, did you automate it in some way? Uh, we did have some of the cut from the live broadcast that was um, kind of curated by the drone team that was mm -hmm. broadcast on the stream during the race. Okay. So we knew a little bit of kind of what shots to follow and what was the general. I mean, obviously, they're at least going to have cars in the shot if it's in the broadcast. Mm -hmm. um, so we were able to use those and then some amount of manually coming through, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 that wasn't the uh, most exciting no. you know, way that you spent time. No. <laughs> um, and it, with that, did you, uh, the manual coming through, like what, uh, did you use some like some kind of off the shelf tools to facilitate that? Or um, Luckily, we were kind of able to just write down timestamps in videos. Okay. Um, and then I had written some scripts and... FFmpeg is kind of the default tool to for, just snip out snippets yeah, and dump and, them in a drive or something like that. Yeah. And so once we had kind of parsed through all of those and extracted some percentage of the frames, mm -hmm. um, we were able to send those off to a labeling company and then provide them with a series of guidelines and kind of helpful data sheets about each of the different cars that we wanted mm -hmm. labeled since we had something close to 40 or 50 different cars. Mm -hmm. Um, or some of them looked pretty similar. So it was a, that was kind of the, one of the larger challenges was making sure the labeling team was actually able to mm -hmm. do their job correctly such that the model itself was able to do it just its job. Mm -hmm. um, so how long, do, do you have a sense for how long you spent on just this kind of data collection and pre, um, like pre-labeling task? Um, the data collection itself, the recording of the video was over the entire 2017 race season. So I guess that maybe shouldn't be included. Um, but kind of the curation of what we were going to yeah. provide to them, I would say happened over a, a week or two. Okay. Um, we were able to get a couple different data scientists looking at it and people who... And yeah. you started with a hundred or so hours, I think you said. What mm -hmm. was the how? What was the size? Like, if you added up all the snippets that you sent on to get annotated, 
how many hours did you have of that? It was close to, I think, one hour. Um, okay. So significantly less. It's a very less. dense um, set. Yeah. Um, yeah we even, uh, after that, we obviously, because from frame to frame, there's really not that much difference, mm-hmm. um, we were pulling something like maybe 10% of the frames. Um, so that we can get more variety with a lower number of frames mm-hmm. since it really, every single frame is more effort for the labeling team and you're really mm-hmm. trying to reduce that as much as possible. Right, right. Um, so meaning you use 10% of the frames in the one hour of, mm-hmm. of footage. Um, and then you had this label by the labeling team. I would have imagined that you needed a lot more uh, training examples to achieve, you know, acceptable performance on this. Were you using these examples in conjunction with the previous, tra- like, was this a transfer learning type of task or did you train from scratch um, with these new examples? Yeah, we ended up actually going straight from scratch. Um, we kind of tried to approximate the size of some of the other popular object detection data sets like mm-hmm. Pascal VOC. Okay. Um, and so that was kind of our goal to begin with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, basically from scratch was a little bit challenging, but we realized we probably needed to do it that way just because of kind of some of the uniqueness of this problem. Um, the fact mm-hmm. that these cars are very small and we have 50 different classes, but they all look very similar. So it's more of a fine grain classification problem, which a lot of these typical object detection data sets don't really um, cover. Mm. And is the is it generally the case that for these fine grain uh, types of object uh, identification problems that you need less data than you know if you were training up kind of object you know coarse grain object detectors from scratch? Um, I don't know if I'd say less data. I think it depends on also how you develop the model. So. Yeah. Um, there are some kind of future steps and kind of some of the state of the art and fine grain detection that we're planning to implement where um, you'll train a deep network and then chop off the top and add an SVM on top. Um, mm-hmm. And that is able to do a lot better at these tasks where the the features between the two classes are very similar, but there is a boundary um, mm-hmm. versus kind of the traditional something with something like what we use for SSD, where it's an end-to-end neural network. So um, I think for the end-to-end case, you probably need about the same amount of data. Um, We ended up having probably close to a thousand labels uh, per car, Mm -hmm. um, maybe 2000, um, which seemed to be similar to some of these other data sets. Okay. Um, obviously, some cars were more frequent than others, and there, mm-hmm. there wasn't a ton we could do besides rebalancing afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it turned out to work pretty well. Uh, huh. Nice. Thankfully. Um, <laughs> what kind of model, like model approach, model architecture, did you end up uh, using, and how did you arrive at that? Yeah, so we ended up using a single shot multi box detector. Um, 
which I think Andres, who was on your show a few weeks ago talking about the NASA project, uh-huh. they also use that for the crater detection. Okay. Um, so because of some of the optimizations that we have in Neon for Intel, um, that made sense on that front. So we were able to get kind of the live speed that we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also kind of the general architecture itself. It's a one shot, uh, not one shot in the one shot learning one-shot sense, learning. but in the <laughs> single shot, like it, it's a single architecture. You don't have kind of a two step process like faster RCNN has where first it proposes boxes and then it does the classification. Um, okay. This kind of happens all at once. So that is partially one of the reasons why it's significantly faster, which we liked. Um, and it also has kind of feature maps of multiple different scales. So um, What does that mean? Uh, we have uh, convolutional networks. Can, when they operate and you go up and higher le- higher layers, the kind of the feature maps continue to shrink down and down further. Mm-hmm. Um so if we provide all of those to the end classifier, it's able to kind of get the same object at a bunch of different resolutions. So it's able to, in the end, basically it means we're able to classify objects better at a lot of different scales. So mm-hmm. small objects, big objects, which was really one of the main challenges of this problem in this data set. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that one of the things that you looked at or are looking at or considered was um, doing a network where you kind of chopped off the the end of the network and replace it with a, an SVM. Have you, how far did you go down that path? We haven't gotten there at all yet. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of next steps that we're looking into. I'm not sure uh, how many I can discuss, but uh, there's, it's, yeah, that's definitely something we're considering. Okay. Like, what are the kind of outstanding challenges in, you know, trying to productionalize this? I always kind of change whether I say productize, productionize, productionalize. But, uh, it's a production. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's remaining uh, for you to kind of take on uh, with, this, with this project? Yeah. One of the big ones is uh, the fact that the appearance of the cars isn't necessarily static in between races um, or even in between days of a given race. Um, a driver may change the color of their rims on their tires or even oh, really? completely change the wrap on their car or crash the car on one day. Slap on some day. different logos? Or... Yeah, exactly. Huh. Um, so if we're trying to do a purely supervised kind of one of these, like, just pound it with as much data as possible to get mm-hmm. it to learn, um, then that makes it a little more challenging. Hard to uh, keep up. Hard to keep up. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so how do you address that? So there's a couple ways. Um, the way that we're thinking to address it at this point is we would like to be able to just, during practice laps, maybe take five three, four, five pictures mm-hmm. of a given car. Um, we can know when a car has changed appearance slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if we have a model that's able to learn to classify cars just based on that small support set, um, that is kind of, that would be ideal. So there's some architectures out there that are kind of attempting to do this today and it's kind of in the 
one shot, few shot learning mm -hmm. um, field. And so stuff like matching networks or some of the other meta learning techniques, um, I think are what we're going to be exploring in the immediate future. How much have you dug into that stuff uh, so far? One shot, few shot meta learning are things that I, you know, are on my list of uh, things to dig into a bit more on the podcast this year. So if, if you've learned about some of this stuff uh, already, I'd love to get a sense for, you know, what you've seen out there and what you find interesting. Yeah. I mean, I saw a ton of interesting meta learning talks this year at NIPS. Okay. Um, and a lot of the significant portion of them focused around kind of this few shot learning idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And meta learning as a framework is pretty general. Mm -hmm. And so um, some people uh, were approaching it from the like kind of the transfer learning perspective, mm -hmm. um, where you say, okay, we're actually going to design our optimization function such that our goal is that we learn a set of parameters that with a single gradient step, we're able to uh, achieve a variety of different tasks or achieve high performance on a variety of different tasks, mm -hmm. um, which is different than kind of just optimize for a single specific task. Mm -hmm. um, I think that work is called MAML um, out of Berkeley. Um, okay. And so that that's something that I think is generally applicable um, to, I mean, obviously any model. Um, which is cool. Uh, and then some stuff like the matching network where it's almost like a K-nearest neighbors type uh, approximation of classification where you say, okay, I'm going to give it five images of this type of dog and now show it a new dog. And mm -hmm. it's going to compare with these images that it knows and see which one's the closest. Um, mm -hmm. And then, or do some sort of majority vote based mm -hmm. on the class using that. So um, the cool thing is that they're all kind of differentiable and not necessarily related to a specific data set. So I think that hmm. makes it interesting. So is the idea that you would have someone like at the track who is, or I guess they could be remotely, but someone who's looking at these live uh, practice run videos and like coming up with a, an annotated sample and, uh, you know, shooting that, like, are you... Are you then triggering an entire retrain of some model, um, you know, just before the race? That sounds <laughs> the, the hope is we don't have to do that. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that would be dangerous. Yeah, it sounds um, dangerous. <laughs> I think we had discussed that before and we were like, well, what could go wrong? <laughs> what if it just doesn't finish training in time? Right. Um, yeah. So the I think we want to have an interface where you can kind of just draw either click on the cars or draw a couple boxes around the cars. Mm -hmm. um, we, our models will work as a general car detector from drone footage, right. um, kind of regardless of how the appearance of the car changes. Mm -hmm. So it should be as simple as just clicking on the new car over a series of frames and the boxes will already be there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, hopefully if we use something like a matching network, those can just be cropped out and dumped into a directory and we actually don't have to do any retraining. Um, so the model uses those images as part of its inference procedure, um, hmm. which is kind of the ideal scenario. Mm -hmm. So in what way, how, does, how is the model incorporating the, those images as part of the, the inference? 
Um, so is, you talked about the like the the five images of the dog and um, yeah. getting a new one. Is it these annotated car images would be presumably the five images of the dog, but that's happening at inference time, not training time. Yeah, so maybe we have five images of every single car yeah. associated with that as the labels. Um, this is kind of a really rough overview of the matching network. Sure. They, did, they added some <laughs> fancy stuff on top of this, but okay. um, basically like a K nearest neighbor. So all of those images, so maybe you have 10 different cars, so you have 50 mm -hmm. images total. They're all embedded with some learned embedding function mm -hmm. or just a mapping. Um, and then... An embedding function... Uh, into what space like some lower dimensional so you just have like a fully connected neural network layer and it goes to some smaller space so you okay. have new now features for all of those pictures okay you also do the same mapping on your new input um, and then you can just compare through some distance metric or some similarity metric uh, that new input and all of your mm. 50 kind of just loaded images. So these mm -hmm. images were n potentially never trained on. Okay. Um, you're really just learning that embedding function. And then once you compare and find, okay, it's closest to these five or these three or this one, um, you can take a weighted combination of those classes and then whichever class kind of has the highest vote mm -hmm. is what you end up going with. And how does the train model interact with and inform the, you know, this matching process that happens at inference time. Is it that in this model, the, like the, the model that you've trained, the network is only doing object detection and then the, this matching process is doing the object identification or does having the trained model somehow inform the identification as well, but you've got this extra layer that refines it? Yeah, so I think we could do it either way. Uh, we would like to be able to keep it as a single model um, mm -hmm. just for speed reasons, um, but that's still kind of in the research phase. Uh, the, an alternative is to kind of have the SSD model just do the object detection and then have the whatever additional network that we have on top does kind of the few shot learning and classification of the different cars. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, a lot of these are things to explore in the near future. <laughs> right. And you mentioned SSD a couple of times. What is SSD? What does SSD uh, stand for? Sorry, it's the single shot multi box uh, detector. Got it. Single shot multi box detector. Right. Okay. As opposed to your hard drive on your. <laughs> <laughs> and. We have an implementation of SSD that's open source on the Neon GitHub repo. Okay. Um, so that's actually what we ended up using for this project. Um, okay. It's pretty much just plug and play with a new data set and a little bit of tuning, and we were able to achieve pretty good performance. So um, Nice. And now is the, the data set that you've, like, are you publishing this data set or anything like that? Uh, not at this point. Okay. Um, or any of the, uh, any of the models or anything like that? Are you, um, publishing them or do you have like technical blog posts or something that folks can take a look at if they want to get more detail as into like how you approach this problem? Yeah, we have a technical blog post that should be out. 
uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or will be coming out, um, describing some of the data collection and the modeling procedure and pre-processing steps that we used, okay. um, as well as a little bit of the training. So that should give people a pretty good idea. And are there um, are there other kind of types or classes of problem that you think that this same kind of approach would lend itself to? Or is this, like, do you think this is very custom to the unique challenges of having six drones flying around trying to identify, you know, Formula racing cars or Ferrari uh, racing cars? Yeah, I, I definitely. Uh, even today here at CES at the booth, we had a lot of people coming up and saying, oh, this could work for this sport that I participate in. Or mm-hmm. um, we haven't quite explored those areas in terms of partnerships or how that would work yet but I think it's definitely applicable to all sorts of different either broadcast races or sports or when just when there's a fast moving object that it's difficult for viewers to follow and it helps a lot to have some sort of either AI assistance or overlay or automatic broadcast control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Andy so this is this is kind of uh you know, this project was just announced here. What are some of the other things that you're working on? Yeah, so I'm working on obviously continuing this project and some of the optimizations that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, my other work is more related, like I said, to what I had done my master's on, um, which is kind of um, end-to-end question-answer systems and dialogue systems. Mm-hmm. Um, using... Om- Similar uh, network topologies, if you look at it, kind of squint and from a distance. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Stuff like memory networks um, are are a large part of my work. Okay. Um, So I'm really interested in kind of memory augmented neural networks and the role that can play in not just question answering, but kind of a bunch of different challenges. And are memory networks and memory augmented networks, is that, are these related to like LSTMs and attention mechanisms and that kind of thing? Or um, Yeah, very similar to attention. Um, it's typically uh, the memory augmented network means it has kind of some sort of fixed um, readable memory that you can either load items into. Um, Mm -hmm. So for the case of the memory networks for question answering, you'll load in a story, like a text story of something that happened and then ask it questions about that story. Mm -hmm. Um, And so similar to attention, the memory network will kind of compare whatever its input is with all of the story that's loaded in memory. Mm -hmm. Um, So those, those are very similar. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, guys, for uh, taking a hike over in the rain and the, uh, the traffic. Uh, it was great chatting with you, and I, I enjoyed learning uh, more about what you're doing with the Ferrari Challenge. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. Remember, for your chance to win in our AI at Home giveaway, Head on over to twimmelai.com slash myaicontest for complete details. For more information on Andy, Emil, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 104. 
Thanks once again to Intel AI for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about their partnership with Ferrari North America Challenge and the other things they've been up to, visit ai.intel.com. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you, either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter, directly to me at, at Sam Charrington or to the show at, at Twimmel AI. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.